Well, I think it's safe to say that life sure is messy. If we're honest, we can confess that. It's, it's a mess. It's messy. And as we enter into the Advent season, you know, this time in which we really should be about celebrating the greatest gift, the gift of Jesus, unfortunately, it seems to accentuate the messiness, doesn't it? The brokenness, the hardships, the reality that we're all dealing with failed plans. We're all dealing with disappointing and broken relationships. We're all dealing with despair. There are accidents, there's sickness, there's loss, there's heartbreak, and Christmas just seems to accentuate that. But the experience of the messy and brokenness of life should really just drive us all the more to Jesus, the gift of Christmas. Because into this mess and the brokenness of life walks our Savior. And we need to be reminded that this morning, that this message, the gospel message, the story of the Lord and the glory of the Lord, from the world's perspective, you know, it's not a happy story and it's not a success story, but what God declares it to be is a salvation story, and that's what we need, salvation So the Lord is about the glorious work of pursuing his people even into the mess and saving us and sanctifying us and redeeming shattered dreams and along the way his superabounding grace he works powerfully in our lives and as we begin our Advent journey we come to the book of Ruth and you know Ruth is all about the greatest love story, isn't it? But it begins in the mess of life. It begins in the brokenness and the darkness and the pain of this fallen world, but it leads to a baby. Not just the baby born in Bethlehem to Boaz and Ruth, but to the Son of God born in Bethlehem. So as we look at Ruth, it's a great way to walk through Advent. Because, you know, Advent, it's all about the light of Christ breaking into the darkness. Well, here, as we open up Ruth, there's the darkness. It's the time of the judges, God's people rebellious and arrogant and ungrateful, and they're under judgment. But hallelujah, the Lord God is faithful to his promise, and he pursues his people with his covenant kindness, and he saves them, and he sanctifies them, and he meets them in their brokenness, and he brings them to blessing, the glories of the gospel according to Ruth. So hear God's word. Let us hear it together. Ruth chapter 1. I'll read the whole chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his, son, his two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahalon and Kilion died. 
so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of the Lord, may he write it upon our hearts and souls for all eternity. Amen. Well, this brings us to our first main point this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin. The first thought today as we look at this text is the Lord is always at work in our lives. The Lord's always at work in our lives. God is always at work within our hearts and within our lives. He's doing that mysterious work even if you don't believe that he is. He's right there. It's still true. And as this story opens up, describing the journey of this family, they're immigrating from Bethlehem to the east to Moab. And again, we need to set the stage for this, the context for this. This story takes place in, in the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a lawless time. After God had given the promised land to the people and they came in and they subdued it with Joshua, it was this land flowing with milk and honey, it was a place of great blessing. 
But very soon after that, the people of God began to turn away and rebel. And what we're seeing take place here is the truth of God's word, the reality of his promise of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. God blesses obedience and he curses disobedience. And so there's a famine. The fields are barren. There's brokenness. There's rebellion. This family flees. But you see, here's the point. None of what was happening in the life of this family or the life of Israel was an accident. God's in control. He's working. He's in the midst. And he's saying, he's declaring, turn back to me, return to me, call upon my name, and I will return blessing to you. You see, in the covenant discipline that we see here, God is always at work in our lives in the good times and the bad times because he is the sovereign. You know, we Americans really have a difficult time grasping the sovereignty of God. We have an aversion to it. You know, during the American Revolution, there were a lot of slogans, and one of them you see on T-shirts even to this day, don't tread on me. But one of the most popular slogans during the American Revolution was this, we serve no sovereign here. Welcome to America. Bunch of rebels, huh? Well, our nation has built in an allergy to this sovereignty, but the reality is the Lord, the sovereign, isn't an American. He's not a God fashioned after our image. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And when the, the, the scriptures speak about his authority, his sovereignty, it shows forth the reality that he is absolutely in control. And that he's absolutely in authority over all things. And he is absolutely present all the time and everywhere in his sovereign reality. As Daniel declares in Daniel chapter 4, the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So here's the application here. We find Naomi and her family in distress, even rebelling, but the Lord is right there working in the midst through loving discipline in spite of their sins. And perhaps you're here this day and you're in the same situation, a similar situation. You're leaning upon your own trust, your own way, your own will. You're denying the sovereignty of Almighty God. Well, take heart. Look to the Lord Christ. He is at work in your life, whether you realize it or not, because he's not only the sovereign, but we see secondly this morning that the Lord is also king. Hallelujah. The Lord Almighty is the king. He's the king over our lives. And we see something very ironic here in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name Elimelech means my God is king. But what is Elimelech doing with his life, with his motions, with his obedience? He's not acting out the reality of his name that my God is king. He's living in such a way that he's showing everyone around him that he's the king. So he moves his family east to Moab. This horrible place filled with pagan idolatry and some of the worst kinds of sins. Even child sacrifice and shrine cult prostitution. Sexual immorality that would scandalize even us in our culture. What's he doing? 
Well, he wasn't living up to his name. You see, Moab is the incestuous son of Lot and his oldest daughter. And instead of seeking God's grace and seeking God's face, even in the midst of the discipline of the famine, Elimelech declares, I'm king, and he heads out away from the promised land, away from the place where God promised to meet with his people and to bless his people. Well, the Lord promised his people if they would but return to him, he would shower them with blessing. Well, what's the application here? Well, sadly, brothers and sisters, this is how we act so very often. All of our names could be Elimelech. We take matters into our own hands. We, we live as though we are king, not the Lord Almighty. It's true. We, we do that. We see it in a lot of different ways. We see it when people are desperate for a job, so they take one that they know is not honoring to the Lord. But they're not patient. They don't wait upon the Lord. Or they're desperate for a job promotion, so they... They turn away from what the Lord is calling them to do and to be in their character, and they do things that are wrong to get ahead. But we see it when people are desperate for a relationship. We're called to be equally yoked, to enter into the covenant of marriage with a believer. But often believers, you know, they become their own king, and they, they fall in love, and they run in the way of a relationship that is not to be honoring to the Lord. But you see, our God... Is king. And he's not just king over our lives, but he's over the universe. And Solomon calls to us from the holy pages of Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own wisdom or understanding. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Well, Elimelech and Naomi, they fell to the temptation of leaning on their own wisdom to take matters into their own hands. But hallelujah, by God's grace and mercy, he is sovereign even over our sin. And he acts and moves, and he does so in a mysterious way. You see, for us to have our lives transformed, for, for the Lord to take our shattered dreams and our broken hearts and to redeem them, oftentimes he has to make things worse for us. To get us to a place where we're humble and looking to him. Well, we see it happens. Elimelech dies. That brings us to our third point. The path back to God always begins on a broken road. It always begins on a broken road. That's what we see in verses 3 to 5. I mean, don't we really all have Hearts that are committed to self-determination and self-sufficiency? Yes, we do. Because we're sons and daughters of Adam. And at that very moment when Adam and Eve fell into sin, all roads were broken. All lives were broken by sin. Because the wages of sin is death. Sin is bankruptcy. And that's the starting point for every human being except for one. The Lord Jesus and often the Lord allows more brokenness to get us where we need to be. And so here we see it. The road home begins right here in brokenness. Elimelech dies. Naomi's brokenhearted. Here she is, an immigrant in a foreign land. Her husband dies. The ground underneath her is beginning to crack. But I bet even through her tears, she probably said, 
At least I have my two sons. Lo and behold, though, the worst is still to come. Naomi's grief comes crushing down on her, doesn't it? I mean, Mahalon and Kilion, they're gone. They die too. Her security's gone. Ten years in Moab, and there is Naomi standing at the third grave of her closest family. No husband, no sons, broken, alienated. The dark night of the soul. She's got no family, no money, no hope, no future. She must have felt like the Lord had just pierced her heart with his sword and just turned the hilt. What's he doing? Well, there's Naomi with a broken heart and shattered dreams. But you see, this is the point. In our brokenness, Jesus doesn't desire to humiliate us, but to humble us so that we can be ultimately healed as he moves into our hearts and lives. Let's face it. No one likes to feel dependent or to be dependent. That's why men won't even ask for directions, you know. I mean, hallelujah, we have iPhones now, but it's pretty bad. We don't like that. We don't like to be dependent. But this is what Jesus says to each and every one of us. You must become in your mind and heart what you really are, which is a child. You must become like a child and receive because you are dependent. There's only one independent being. That's the Lord. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the Lord who graciously works in our lives in spite of our sin, who is king of the universe and shepherd of our hearts, he gets us to the place that we need to be so we can receive grace. The love of God, because we desperately need it. I ask, brothers and sisters, do we typically respond to Jesus' call to become like children and to humble ourselves and trust in him? No, we so very often, brothers and sisters, we build walls of self-protection and we often arrogantly refuse to trust. We often embrace the first commandment of fallen thinking and, and it's this. Trust no one but yourself and what you can control, then you'll live. But you see, that's crazy. And to heal our brokenness, these lies must be broken. So the Lord comes and he humbles us so that he can lead us home. And that brings us to our next point, the fourth point. Hallelujah. The Lord always meets his people on the broken road. That's good news. That's what we need to hear, not just at Christmas time and Easter, but every day, arms wide open, the Lord will meet us on that broken road. You see, that's what we see in verses 6 to 7 here. This is mysterious. It's wonderful. But the Lord, by his word and his spirit, he moves to meet us in our brokenness even before we know what he's doing or even understand what he's doing. We have to see what's happening here. Naomi had heard. She had heard that the Lord had blessed his people with bread. In verse 6, we see the mystery coming alive. And she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. There's a lot going on here. And we need to see it. You know, in Naomi's circumstances, many people would say, I've had enough of that God. 
After everything I've been through, they would shake their fist and say, no, I'm not returning. But Naomi doesn't do that. It's because the Lord is working on her heart in the secret places. Because you see, by the gift of his grace, he brings forth the seed of repentance that is a gracious gift unto life that is a process. Repentance is a process. It's not a one-time thing, but it carries on miraculously. She's broken. She's humbled. She begins the journey home to Bethlehem. Why? Because the Lord had acted according to his promise. He had returned to his people and blessed them as they turned to him. And there's a fruitful harvest. And you see there's a fruitful harvest that's taking place in the secret places of Naomi's heart. Because repentance is coming alive. The fruit of repentance, it begins to grow. We see that in this little mysterious word here, returns. It's the Hebrew word shub. And what we need to understand is that Hebrew is not like English. It's not like French or Spanish or Greek. In some ways, Hebrew is very simplistic. And yet, in its usage, in its context, it's very complicated. There's a fluidity of how the words can be used. And see, with the whole context that we see here in the usage of this word, this word means to return, to restore, to renew, to be about repentance unto life, a turning, a change. After a decade of running from God on our own terms, it's as if the Lord by his spirit comes forth and she comes to her senses and she shoves and she knows there's bread in my father's house. I will arise and go. Where have we heard that before? Well, we've heard this good news and we're witnessing here a gospel brokenness where God's tender mercies and grace towards his people are clarified and manifested. It's a glorious thing. Naomi stopped running. She's not shaking her fist. She's repenting. And the Lord meets her on the broken road with gospel brokenness. Gospel brokenness. Gospel brokenness is God-given grace that allows us to be completely honest about our sin and our broken lives without falling into toxic shame or self-contempt so that we can cast ourselves headlong upon the Lord's grace and the gift of his promise. Well, that's gospel brokenness stated. What does it look like? Well, it looks like the prodigal son. It looks like a man named Zacchaeus who was despised and despicable as one who had extorted money from his own people. He was hated. And Jesus meets him and greets him and loves him and saves him so that his heart is broken open and he declares, Lord, out of this gift, I'll make it right. Well, we see gospel brokenness in the life of Mary Magdalene, don't we? This poor woman enslaved to the sins of the night, broken on the way to hell. And Jesus meets her in her need and saves her. And gospel brokenness shows up when she can shamelessly go into the Pharisee's house where Jesus is dining and wash his feet with her tears 
and dry them with her hair. Well, how is this possible? How is gospel brokenness possible? This gift unto life, a saving grace, repentance unto life. I'll tell you how. Because the true bread came down from heaven and was broken for us. You know how bread is made? The kernel of wheat comes forth and you have to grind it. You got to break it up so that it becomes the bread. Well, the true bread came down from heaven The Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who perfectly embodied all of God's holy, righteous laws and commands in perfection before the watching world because his heart burned for the Father in love. And he loved all those around him so that he was the Lamb of God that could go to the cross. The bread of life became the Lamb of God to be slain for us. As the confession says, he endured the painful, shameful death that we all deserve on the cross because God's holy and we're not. And he stood in the place of his people. And hallelujah, he went all the way to hell and the grave to give us life and peace. And the the truth of it couldn't be held back. So that the testimony was his resurrection on the third day, testifying to the reality that he's the bread of life that was broken for the people of God. And so, hallelujah, we get the gift of faith and repentance unto life when we have gospel brokenness because Jesus comes to us and he saves us so that we can rest and receive him and rejoice. And it's a process. And it moves throughout all the days of your life from the moment you're born again till you see Jesus face to face on the other side and your faith becomes sight. Well, Naomi hears that there's bread in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And so she heads home. And of course, you know, Naomi, she couldn't make the connections that we're able to make in light of the New Testament on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection and the ascension. But what she knew was that her God was the God of promise and he had promised the Messiah. And she trusted in him and she began to move according to that faith. So what about us? Is the Lord pressing on us in the deep places of our hearts? Bringing some pain and some despair and some hardship that we would get where we need to be so that we can look up and receive and hear yet again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are you hungry today? Are you thirsty? Are you broken? Are you tired of sin? Are you tired of faking it? Rest in Christ. Rest in the promise. He brings restoration, renewal, reconciliation in life. Well, Naomi, she's on her way home. She's headed back to Judah, to the land of promise, because the Lord has provided. But hallelujah, brothers and sisters, God doesn't just provide once and then stop. No, he keeps on providing. He gives us what we need to make it all the way home in our pilgrimage, in our journey. And that's what we see finally. The Lord always provides what his people need to overcome. And we see this as this chapter carries on and closes out with two precious gifts. The first of which is the gift of true friendship. 
true friendship. That's what we see in verses 7 to 14 and 19 to 22. Because as we travel through this broken world, the Lord in his mercy, he provides what we need. And we need one another. We need friendships, true friendships. And true friendship is no ordinary relationship. We so easily take for granted the fact that we have brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. But it is actually a blessing that flows out of the reality of the Trinity that is in true friendship and fellowship, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we get to experience that through Christ. Well, of course, our fallen world today it cheapens friendship. It's fake. It's reduced to social media and convenience. But true friendship is always in the Lord, always in Christ. And it's a sacrificial love rooted in the promise to be there for others, to walk with others in the Lord. Well, Naomi needs this gift, doesn't she? Yes, she's come alive to faith and repentance. She's coming alive to the Lord's promise, but she's still dealing with the pain and the scars. I mean, she's been through so much. She needs the gift of Ruth, and Ruth needs the gift of Naomi. And we see this true friendship manifested right off the bat and that true friendship is able to speak the truth in love. That's what we see taking place here. Naomi is recounting to these young women the cost of discipleship. From an Old Testament perspective and Ruth's experience, what did it mean to follow the Lord? You must count the cost. She's saying, look, I'm going back to Judah. I'm returning to the Lord and there are no guarantees. If you return to me, to Judah, to the people of God, to the place where God meets with his people, I can't guarantee you anything except for that the Lord Jehovah is there blessing his people. She speaks the truth in love. And you know what? This is where Orpah fades away. Because Orpah is looking at all this through the eyes of self and the eyes of flesh. And what you see Right here with Orpah is she hears this message of the cost of discipleship that, that Jehovah plus nothing equals nothing. And she bails. She's looking at it through the, the rational. And the rational is the real for her. What you see is what you get. But you see, Ruth has something mysterious taking place here. Because what she hears is Jehovah plus nothing equals enough. And enough is actually mysteriously everything when you come alive to the promise of God. And so what we see taking place here, this second gift that we desperately need as we press on, we've already seen it with Naomi, now we see it with Ruth, the gift of faith, amazing faith that flows forth from amazing grace. We should be staggered by what we see here and what we hear coming from Ruth. Verses 15 to 18, true faith confessed, unlikely faith. Scandalous grace produces this unlikely faith. I mean, consider the reality here. Ruth is a Moabite. She comes forth from this people that are so broken, so twisted. She's been raised in this. God has commanded a curse over Moab. And yet, in love, she hears the message of the God of promise. And she moves with her heart. 
You know, there's a lot of tears in chapter 1. They're crying all over the place, and why wouldn't they? But we see here that, that all tears are not the same. That's what we see. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, a sorrow over sin that moves us. We apprehend what we've done wrong, and we also apprehend the mercy of God, and we move with godly sorrow and tears. Well, Orpah has cried, but it's not godly sorrow. But Ruth cries, and it flows from a heart that's been transformed in the mystery of God's amazing grace. And this is what she says. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Somewhere along the way of hearing about the God of promise, the Lord opened Ruth's heart, just like he did Lydia's heart. And the Spirit gave her faith, and that faith was manifested in words. She makes this glorious confession, a hallelujah confession. You know, we so easily read over this without being struck with the amazing grace of God. Come on. It's amazing. God is good. He's kind. He's merciful. And what we see here is scandalous grace because he doesn't look at Ruth and say, well, she's going to do this for me or she's got this worth or value. No, she's bankrupt, just like we all are. And he saves her just because of his loving kindness, his unfailing love and mercy, his grace given to her because Christ, the bread of life, will come. This is mysterious. Naomi says, go back. And Ruth says, I can't because Jehovah's my God and you're my mother. Hallelujah. Well, brothers and sisters, as we look at this and we consider the mystery of Advent, the glory of Advent from the book of Ruth, all these years before the coming of Christ, what we see is that wonderful scarlet thread that is woven through all of redemptive history from Genesis to the end of Revelation, and it's Jesus. Because Ruth, this trophy of grace, becomes part of the line of the Lord of glory. And this love story, it ends here with Boaz and Ruth having a baby boy, but it doesn't end there. That scarlet thread goes all the way to the greater Boaz, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the Savior, the light of light, the bread of life. So what do you do with this? What will we do with this during this Advent season? What will I do with it? What will you do with it? We've heard again the gospel of God declared from Ruth. Is it gripping your heart? You see, this great love story can include you and your story too. God wants to shed his grace on you and cover you with his love. So you're here today, you're hearing the message of peace and love and truth and joy in Jesus. So if you're in a place of brokenness, cry out to the Lord. He'll hear you. He'll meet you. One of the greatest promises of the Bible is in James. The Lord says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Test him. Cry out to him. Draw near to him. And let's all journey deeper into this Advent celebration together. 
looking to the light of life, the Lord of glory, that we might hallelujah. Amen.